Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. I am Patrick D. McCoy, the African American voice in classical music, and I welcome you to, to today's wonderful episode. This episode is the inaugural episode of the Maestro series, which is an ongoing series dedicated to celebrating celebrated choral and orchestral conductors in classical music. Today we are honored to have one of the nation's great conductors with us today. Stan Engelbretson is the conductor of the National Philharmonic Chorale, which is based at the Music Center at Strathmore. In addition to his work with the National Philharmonic Chorale, he is also director of choral studies at George Mason University, teaching conducting and directing the university's symphonic chorus, university singers, and three vocal jazz ensembles. An active guest conductor and clinician, Engelbretson holds the performance degrees in voice and piano from the University of North Dakota and the Doctor of Musical Arts degree in conducting from Stanford University. There are many, many accolades that I could go on to list, but at this time I would want to welcome Dr. Stan Engelbretson. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, Patrick. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to have you on, and I can really uh, drop uh, the doctor because I consider you a friend. I've known you for several years. You've been a mentor, and I've seen you so many times at different choral conventions, and I just want to say it's such an honor to share this particular space with you this afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about the exciting performance coming up at the Music Center at Strathmore on this coming Saturday of the Verdi Requiem. Could you tell us just a little bit about that project? Well, this is a a wonderful chance to bring a great piece to to life. Verdi Requiem, of course, is is a a remarkable work. It's a large force work with with double chorus, full orchestra, four operatic soloists, antiphonal trumpets in the balconies. Um, It's one of Verdi's greatest pieces and certainly one of the top choral works of all time. And we're excited to do it in Strathmore, one of the beautiful halls here in Washington. It certainly is a beautiful hall. What would you say is the the real big appeal of the work? I've noticed just as I've seen many concerts in Washington and just as I peruse the Internet and other sources that people are really performing the Verdi Requiem all over the place. What is the, such the appeal that really makes it so popular as it is? Well, it, it's certainly the drama of the piece. It certainly is operatic writing. Um, some people have called it uh, Verdi's greatest opera, but it is very much like seeing a concert opera. It's very dramatic, even though it uses a sacred text. It's a, the, the text of the Requiem, but Verdi is such a great writer in terms of the way he depicts the terror of the Day of Wrath or the, the calling of the trumpet with the antiphonal trumpets through the hall and the, the beautiful uh, arias that the various soloists get to sing. So, so that's among the greatest parts of the piece. It's just tremendously dramatic. This year also, though, is, is the 150th anniversary of the reunification of Italy. So you see many people are bringing this piece forward as a celebration of the 150th anniversary. That is such a commemorative way to do so. Could you maybe speak on uh, the amount of preparation that was involved? How long did the choir uh, rehearse, and how did you put it all together to culminate into Saturday's performance? Oh, it's it's a labor of love. Over the last 14 weeks, the choir has been working uh, diligently at, at putting this piece really into their souls. Um, we've had an extraordinary uh, long rehearsal period for this one, and it's been really a great delight because now the people are so internalized with the mood of the text and 
it'll be a very unique performance. You can see a lot of Verdi Requiems, but rarely will you see the chorus be so dramatic and so in tune with what they're singing about as this performance will be. It's it's very special. Mm, I'm looking very forward to, to hearing the performance. Could you maybe speak a little bit about the individual soloists who will join the choir and orchestra on Saturday? Well, it's our delight to have world-famous soloists joining us. I think you'll have a chance here to hear Ariana Zuckerman in just a minute uh, coming on to be with us today, but also my longtime colleague and friend, Patricia Miller. Um, we have worked together for years as soloists and as colleagues, and uh, she is a, a wonderful soloist in her own right with many major operatic stages and international career opportunities. Uh, our tenor is Donald Bernardini. What, what better name for an Italian tenor than Donald? Uh, <laughs> he will be coming in. Bernardini will be coming in to uh, sing a, a, the wonderful Ingemisco. It's one of the arias, of course, that lifted Pavarotti early on in his career. So there's a tremendous tenor aria within this piece that people know and recognize. Our favorite bass is coming back, Kevin Days. He's uh, uh, a wonderful uh, bass based out of New York City and New Jersey area comes down and sings. He's on the road constantly singing throughout the world, uh, is also sung in all of the major stages, as is Ariana. So we have uh, uh, just a delightful, what I would call a star-studded cast, a very international cast with great experience, all of whom really own this piece and have done it many times. You indeed do. And at this point, I want to say good afternoon to Ariana Zuckerman, who joins us today. Good morning. Good, good afternoon, morning. Or, I'm sorry. Afternoon. Good afternoon, then. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's the that's the downfall of being live. When you make a mistake, you have to keep on going. But I'm certainly delighted that you are here with us this afternoon. Ariana Zuckerman, as you just heard, is the soprano soloist for Saturday evening's performance of the Verdi Requiem. Now, Ariana, what would you say is probably the most demanding uh, aria in the piece for you? Um, that's a very good question, Patrick. I, there are a lot of demanding sections. I would say that the uh, two of the more terrifying moments in the piece are in the Agnus Dei, which is with uh, it's a duet with the mezzo and the chorus. Um, it, it, you come in in a different key than the um, than the piece before it ended in, and it's a cappella. So we really don't know until the uh, I think it's the twelfth measure whether we got it right. So it's the two, 12 measures of terror, um, and it's, it's quite exposed, but very beautiful. And then, uh, of course, the Liberame, uh, which is the last movement for soprano and chorus and orchestras. Um, I actually have the most fun with that movement, but again, there are really exposed sections, which I, I hear everybody's waiting for the B-flat at the end of the Requiem uh, movement, uh, the Requiem section of that movement with soprano and, and chorus a cappella. Um, so if you blow it, you blew it. That's it. <laughs> you have one chance to get it right. <laughs> now, Ariana, I just heard you last year for the very first time at the Kennedy Center. You were singing the Mozart Requiem, which is uh, quite a bit uh, a change from that to going to this Requiem. Were there any? Are there any kind of vocal adjustments you have to make as far as timbre uh, when you're singing the classical Requiem of Mozart versus the Verdi? This is another good question, Patrick, but I, I think vocalism is vocalism, and um, style is a different story. So you come to every piece with a with a hopefully good, solid technique and uh, apply the style that the composer requires. Um, in a way, the Mozart Requiem is more exposed singing because there's less texture in the orchestra. It, it, in, it requires less uh, 
dramatic fortissimo than the Verdi, for example. But um, but I think again, technique is technique. So you you apply it to whatever uh, piece you find yourself in. And I've been very lucky. Mm, That is a good piece of advice for the singers out here. Well, thank you. (laughs) I I feel really (laughs) lucky to. I always feel lucky to sing uh, such extraordinary music, and um, I have never uh, seen a difference between concert singing and operatic singing from a dramatic perspective. And that you know, there's a there's a drama to be told. Any time a composer decided to set. A melody uh, with words. We have the requirement to bring those words to life, whatever whatever they are. Um, and I and I think that Mozart gives us clues in the Mozart Requiem. Verdi gives us lots of clues in the Verdi Requiem of what he wanted, and it's our job then to honor it. That is that is such key key advice there. Key advice. <laughs> now, Stan, how did you? Um, come in association with Ms. Zuckerman as far as choosing her to be the soloist. When was the first time that you heard uh, Ariana? Well, we've had the privilege to, to work with her over the last several years at the National Philharmonic. Uh, ever since we moved into Strathmore Center for the, or I should say it formally, it's the Music Center at Strathmore. Ever since we have moved in there, Ariana's been one of our favorite artists. Uh, I know she came to do a Mahler with us, if I remember right, a Mahler second. But I also four. know Mahler that we four. had a wonderful chance to do the War Requiem. Mala 4? Okay. <laughs> There's Mala 4, yeah, but it, you know what? That's, we're just picking at the details now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I remember is, is the Britain War Requiem that we did together, which was very exciting. My chance to work with Ariana. And uh, what a tremendous artist. And she is just, uh, as she just said a minute ago, bringing the text to life is the same as preaching to the choir. I mean, we we all <laughs> serve the same master. We're all trying to bring the score, you know, off the page and, and that's what makes music really exciting. It's when we you know, the whole artistry comes together then, and, and that's that's why I love working with her. Thank oh, you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask this question because I know a lot of singers and conductors alike like to hear these these kind of singers and just to to get more insight. So, um, Ariana, I'm going to ask you this question. Just in terms of working with Maestro Ingebrecht, so what has been your your experience as far as, for instance, if you're singing an aria, if you need the aria to go a little bit faster or a little bit slower, what has been your experience with his flexibility? Well, that he is flexible is the experience, which is a really lovely uh, quality and and not all that common. Um, I, I won't name names. But um, it's a wonderful thing to know that that uh, the conductor with whom you're working is willing to take risks with you, willing to say, if I see that you need to uh, move it, I'm going to move it. He actually, we had a, a little phone rehearsal yesterday, and we were talking Tempe, and it, I, it makes me very comfortable to work with somebody like Stan, who says, you know, whatever you need, you can have, um, which is, it's it, it gives great it, it gives great room in the collaboration then to for what Stan was just saying to to bring it to life. Um, and, and he's really, we really, I will actually never forget the Britain War Requiem. First of all, it was my first Britain War Requiem, and um, so that's already terrifying. And he was really right there with me the whole time, and there was a terrible thunderstorm, and we had a, <laughs> we had a blackout. I don't think I will ever in my life forget it. Right at this sort of most climactic moment of the last movement, there was a gigantic clap of thunder, and the lights went out. And they didn't go back on for, I don't know, three, four minutes. It felt like so, hours. It felt like hours. It did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> see, live performance. 
probably one minute, but that was just long enough. You know, the audience was in suspense. The performers were in suspense. We were all standing on stage saying, hold it, hold it, don't. It will come back on. It will come back on. But it was such a massive storm, it took out the generators, too. So it was one of those that, you know, they eventually did come back on after a very long pause. We finished the performance, and it, and it was, as she said, dramatically moving, you know. Um, is, and then we went and had a drink. The end of War Requiem. Yeah, they were accusing us of planning it, actually, but we did <laughs> Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Drama kings and queens. I think it's one of those like you can't write you can't write this stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I want to go back to the Betty Requiem. You know, and going back to that because um, you all have kind of hinted on this a bit. The fact that this work is performed often, often. Matter of fact, Ariana, I was doing some research on you, and I saw that you had did a few uh, performances at UC Berkeley, which are on YouTube, which is fabulous, by the way. I want oh, to know that when you do when you do these performances over and over again, uh, this could be for either one of you to answer. What do you do to come, I guess, to this work or any work for that matter, with a with a freshness, a different approach, that it doesn't become stale? I have to. Well, thank you for checking me out on YouTube. But it was it's actually UC Davis, and I must say that that yeah, performance. UC Davis. That was that was the first time I had performed the Verity Requiem, and they said they were making an archival video, and now it's on YouTube. So careful what you wish for. Um, I would say coming back to it from I can I can go back to that performance and watch it and see where I was versus where I am in terms of vocal development, emotional development, life development, and I, I think that who you are and where you are in the moment affects everything that you do. So, for example, in 2004, I was living in New York. I was a single girl. I had you know not a care in the world sort of, um, and then cut to a few years later, I've done the piece uh, probably, I think, pretty much every year since then at least once, and um, which is I also feel lucky about. But this time around, I am married. I'm living in Washington, D.C. I'm actually expecting my first child, which uh, changes everything. Congratulations. Um, and, well, thank you. Um, so, yes, I'm pregnant. I'm not just fat if you come to the concert. <laughs> um <laughs> Very important. So, you know, all of those things affect how you sing something like um, a recordare or, a, you know, the day of reckoning. It, it it means something different every time you do it. What do you think, Stan? I agree totally. Um, and uh, I am just a, a little overweight. I'm not pregnant, so <laughs> fair note to make about myself. But, yes, we do change as we come to different performances. But... Um, but also, you know, mentally and, and as you come back to your favorite piece, you know, after after having done it, putting it away and then coming back to it, it just it, it the freshness comes back all again. It's uh it, it never gets stale. If anything, it deepens and it richens, just as if you go back and read your favorite book time and again. You think about things in different ways, you see different patterns. In our cases we see different tempos or we try different things. Uh, the soloists each bring their own requirements, so some soloists will want it faster, others would like to take time and do things. So so uh, the orchestra will have a different sound, the choir has a different sound. Every, every time it's new. So, so, But that's that's just part of being, um, uh, it would be like asking a farmer, why do they plant the crops every year? And they say, well, every year it's new. You have something totally coming up that springs fresh every time you look at a piece. And that's always how we feel with every piece, the Messiah, the Verdi Requiem, 
Bach's B minor, anything like that. It always has that great depth because these are such tremendous works of art. That's such a beautiful perspective. And, Ariella, before I um, let you go, I wanted to ask you, what has been your uh, lasting impression um, of the other solos that you've had the privilege to work with? I, I actually have only um, had the privilege of working with Kevin Day's uh, once before. He's the only other soloist I know uh, this time around. We have did a, a Beethoven Mises alumnus together, and I, I have been – I was so impressed with his the the uh strength timbre beauty of of the sound that he makes um and his musicality is unparalleled and I'm just delighted to get to work with him again and and uh I've heard such great things about Signore Bernardini and um Ms. Miller that I'm really excited to to meet them and work with them and um see what we all can create well, Ariana, thank you so much for joining us in this interview, and I especially look forward to hearing you again. It's been long overdue since the Mozart, so I'm definitely looking forward to, to hear you. And, and then back to your comment about you looking fat, I'm sure you're going to look radiant. On no, I look, I look pregnant. That's what I look. <laughs> <laughs> well, you but, should be radiant at the sun then. Thank you. I will, I will do my best. And if it doesn't work out, I have makeup. To help me. <laughs> so thank you, you thank you for all the <laughs> thanks, and thank you for all the very kind words and um, for helping us interest people in this performance. I think it's going to be a real humdinger. Oh, thank you so much, and on that note, I hope that you have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you, Maestro. I'll see you at rehearsal. Thank you both. Thank you, Ariana. Bye bye. Bye. Stan, that was so wonderful to have that opportunity for Ariana. Uh, to join us. Thank you so much. Now, I want to go further and just um, ask some other questions that people might want to know to get a a feel for the life of a a conductor. What really sparked your interest specifically uh, in choral conducting? Oh, it's um, choral conducting for me is sort of hardwired. I I grew up in North Dakota, Minnesota, in the, the center of the country, uh, Scandinavian choral heritage. We all grew up singing with our fathers in the church choir. Um, so, you know, literally from the cradle on, we were the music was part of our life. Um, and, and in terms of going on into choral conducting, it was great mentors. It was a wonderful high school teacher, which led to a great college undergraduate teacher, um, and even you know great graduate school mentors as well. And then coaches and working with. Um, fine conductors ever since. I've done many workshops where I had a chance to work with Robert Shaw or Eric Erickson or some of these other people that are the real leaders in the field, each of which um, was a tremendous inspiration for me and and something from each I think I am inside of me now. I've learned and sort of adapted their uh, their techniques that felt the best for me. So. So for me, choral music is a lifelong art. It's a passion. It's um, I am very lucky. I get to, for my actual daily living, I get to practice my art, which is uh, what all of us want, I think, at some point. So you know, classical choral music is is a magnificent art. I mean, it's just glorious when you talk about the works of Bach and Haydn and Brahms and so on. But at the same time, it's not necessarily in the mainstream and the forefront, such as you know, popular culture. What do you think is necessary to 
I guess, make this art, you know, so that it's not uh, something that's pushed to the back burner, maybe initiative that could bring choral music before the general public? Yeah, it's it's hard to know because um, I, I think there is a lot of choral music for the general public if one thinks of uh, any standard family that has children in school and those children might happen to be involved in the music program. You know, the young ones are are again brought up on the arts. Um, and they'll sing a variety of things. I think there's great art in the music of Ellington and Gershwin and Cole Porter or Jason Robert Brown or a lot of other contemporary people that are writing for the various stages or for the jazz field or for world music. Um, I guess what's really interesting for me is that I enjoy the eclecticism of music and how it is actually a transforming force. When we would go to Cuba, we would bring our music down and you could see that everyone was singing and celebrating together and and there were no borders. Everything was um, together. And you find the same if you go to Asia, you find the same if you go to Africa, Europe, all throughout America. So it's, it's, I don't have a feel that it will ever be pushed aside, that the public won't appreciate good choral art, um, but that the choral art itself is such a broad field, one probably doesn't need to limit it only to the concert hall. There's so much more. But um, now speaking in a shorter answer to your question, I think the, the <laughs> digital revolution is really what's changing it. As Ariana just mentioned, YouTube, how... Uh, people are seeing live performances of various things, historic performances as well as current ones. And, you know, the the media outlets, our iPhones, everything else is bringing us so much more in touch with uh, performance. So I, I think it's just evolving. I don't know that it's going to stay in the concert hall so much. It's going to be everywhere. Mm. that answer your question? That is yeah. <laughs> it's a very long paragraph. I'm sorry. Indeed it does. <laughs> I took a moment to pause because I saw I see that we have a caller who's interested in maybe asking a question about core music. Is great. that something you'd be willing to entertain? Okay, sure, just one moment. Let's see. Good afternoon, you're on the air. Hello. My name Good is afternoon, Denise. how are you? I'm good. Do you have a question for uh, Dr. Ingebrigtsen? Um, yes. Um, my question is um, that first and foremost, um, my name is Danita, and I'm a singer-songwriter, and um, and my question is this um, uh, how do you start um? The on um, the Maestro series. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Could you repeat I... that one more time? My question is, um, how did you start the um the series, the Maestro series? series. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. you want to know how did I start this series? Oh, very, very good question. I started this series, uh, basically the Maestro series is, is what started. Uh, basically to uh, focus on great choral conductors, choral and orchestral conductors in classical music. So they might be wonderful conductors in the concert hall, they might be conductors uh, at churches, or they might be conductors at schools. And so this series is to introduce all of those different 
great leaders of music to different people in the community. So that's really how this series started. There's also another similar series, which is called uh, the Opera Diva series, where I focus on different uh, opera singers and performers in the world of opera. So hopefully this will keep growing and growing where I will focus on a variety of different artists. Does that somewhat answer your question? Yes, it does. Okay. Did you have anything else you might want to say, Dr. Engelbretson, before I um, drop the call? No, that's it. Okay. Thank you so much. What a wonderful question. Thank you so much. Oh, you're right, John. Dr. Engelbrecht, are you still on the air? Yes, thank you. Oh, great. So it was great to actually get a caller. That was wonderful. We wanted to inquire how did I start this series of Ode to uh, the Arts. Now, I wanted to ask you, uh, you made a, a wonderful point a few minutes ago when you were talking about the different variety in choral music. I happened to be on the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church website uh, where you serve as director of music, and one of the fascinating things that I discovered is that as a sign in the worship service, when you show want to show appreciation for the music or something else that happens in the service, that the parishioners wave their bulletins in the air. How did that come about? <laughs> well, it's, a, it's our sister church is the is the first Presbyterian of Havana. It's it's downtown urban church in Havana. It's a mission church, and it's one that we have a sister relationship with. So uh, many of us, have, annually they go down there, I've been down there twice, um, to uh, work with, the, in my case, with the music, but also with the, the interchange of preaching. But one of the things, because it's very hot there, the bulletins are always waving, but also um, when they want to show appreciation, they'll just wave the bulletins instead of applauding in the middle of the service. So, so if, if an anthem is particularly moving, people might actually wave a bulletin versus applauding. So we... It's trying to get around that you know churches are a service and it's not something where where it's more like an entertainment. So in other words, we're offering our anthems up to God. We're not expecting to be rewarded as performers. So. We're just, we're oh just, my goodness! Well, I know this is not church, but I can definitely say Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess every once in a while, a few of those do those too. <laughs> we're not That's hung up absolutely. about it. And, you know, if, if something does happen where people applaud the world of men, but. But it, it's just a nice tradition, but it also respects our our partnership with this church. We enjoy them, and they enjoy us, and we're working to try to get get the borders more open in the future. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, now, we spoke, I kind of touched a little bit on New York Ave Presbyterian, where you, where you are. Um, what do you do at New York Ave in terms of being directed in music, in terms of incorporating the major masterworks into the fabric of of the church worship service. Well, it's a, um, it certainly will do excerpts from from various masterworks, Messiah, Brahms, Requiem, things like that. But it's a uh, it's a church that's two blocks east of the White House. It's an old historic church, over 200 years old, and it's often called the Lincoln Church, which is very exciting. It has some of the drafts that originally led to the Emancipation housed in the building, and you can see Lincoln memorabilia there. Uh, it's on the tourist cycle. A lot of people come and see it. It's, uh, but it's also newly redone. We just spent a, a fair amount of money redoing the sanctuary and building a new 70-rank organ inside. So, and there I get to play every Sunday. I'm the organist choir master. So, uh, so we have a wonderful time making great music. Both, but it's our 
signature, if there is any one thing, is that we try to do a variety that represents a lot of traditions. So we will do everything from jazz to high English music to German music, you know, Germanic music, to, um, you know, uh, sometimes we'll be doing liturgical dance or various other aspects. So it's a church that prides itself on variety of trying to reach people with a good emphasis towards American music because we're of our historic location. Wow. Now, you know, in terms of another facet I want to mention is, is your responsibilities uh, at George Mason University. You probably know this, or you may not know that I'm from a small town of, of Petersburg, Virginia, and two of my friends have actually had the privilege to, to work with you, and those those persons are Isaac Sweet and Thomas Epps. Yeah. We're all from the same hometown. Ah, I didn't know they were all from the same town. Yeah. We're all from the same hometown. Yeah. But what I wanted to talk to you about also, because I try to reach out uh, to some of the young uh, aspiring musicians, because we're all trying to really get to this pinnacle of, of excellence that you are. And, again, I want to thank you for what you're doing to mentor and foster good musicianship uh, to the next generations. I wanted to um, ask you, as, as far as your experiences with students, have you ever had an experience with a student who who is unprepared, uh, per, per se, for a lesson or just to pursue an academic program in music period, and how have you uh, addressed that or or encountered or how, how have you really addressed that kind of situation? Well, it's always hard. Um, for every student, you want them to believe as passionately in music as you do. So, so when you've you've spent the time to to learn a piece or to love it or to know the composer and the history about it and the, maybe the theory behind it, and someone hasn't had a chance yet to get to that level, uh, the answer is you take them where they are and try to show it to them and try to lift them up so that they get excited about learning. Ultimately, as a teacher, you know, I, I don't know what we can teach except the love of learning and so the the excitement of going the extra mile. And so that's what we try to build in on all of our students. Some of them take it better than others in the sense of that's, that hits their passion. And those students now are off in doctoral programs and doing other kinds of extended work, performing. One of my students sings on Broadway. And uh, all these other people got there because of hard work. And so they... They caught the fire, and it was the right fire for them. Now, does is, is every student have that same fire potential? Maybe their fire is for another area. Maybe they are more interested in management or business or life or other kinds of things happen to them where it takes them in a different direction. But, but we know that by studying the arts and by singing and or by singing in a choral ensemble or singing solo, whatever, we know that we've changed them a little bit. I know that we've actually given them a broader feeling and respect for life and that they've been moved. They're able to show their emotions. Um, so I guess that's our goal, uh, to take everybody where they are. Everyone can learn something. Some of them really catch fire. Other ones will will always appreciate it, So uh, you know, but they'll use it in different ways. So. You know, that's a wonderful that's spirit end. because I guess I had a self-serving um purpose of of asking that question, I had an experience, uh, particularly when I uh, was finished my undergraduate work and I, and I wanted to pursue a master's program, and when I went to a particular school and I, and I had all my, my resume and all of my uh, credentials and experiences and I auditioned and all that, 
but the but the final outcome was that the person who was head of the program felt that I wasn't ready, and I was kind of upset, and I was like, oh, darn, I didn't get in, or what's wrong with me, or what's wrong with them? But I'm actually glad that I had an opportunity to to have that rejection because it made me work harder, and then when I pursued the program, you know, somewhere else, I, I was actually ready to pursue it. So I guess that's, that was a, definitely a personal thing, and I'm glad that you um, made mention of uh, the role of the teacher and all of that because it, it definitely helps to make better um, musicians and students. Now, I wanted to go yeah, on and ask that's you. That's true. Many was, times we're surprised that, that some people weren't ready at age 19 or 21. But by age 23, they had matured and they came back and they were amazing students. You know, so, so it is true. Everybody has their own speed of, of when they're ready to want to do things. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's right. very important. Yeah. I don't know. That's 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 all right. I wanted to uh, ask you, what what was your first major choral uh, opportunity or conducting engagement? Oh, um, gosh, that dates back so far. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably uh, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, my first job out of college was a college job, and that was very exciting to have a have a college job starting in 1973. That's how far back we're going here. So within a couple of beats of 40 years here. So, uh, but, um, you know, your first major opportunity, I guess, probably was in Texas. That was my first job after graduate school. Uh, when I was the head of the Middle and Symphony Chorus there and assisting with the orchestral director. So uh, that was the first Verdi Requiem I was able to do, or the first Carmina Burana and the first Messiah and the first, you know, all the big pieces. I was able to conduct those with the orchestra and chorus there. And that was a great reward, So and also a great learning place for me. So, um, so all those skills that I started there, I'm continuing to work on today. And um, and each day when you stand up to conduct your forever examining your own self, your own clarity, your own uh, security with the tempi, making sure everything is right for everybody. So it's a, so so the conducting just keeps growing. So a journey that began almost 40 years ago is still continuing now and will continue for the next who knows how many more years, 10 or 15, 20 years. That's a great point. So all of those young aspiring musicians out there, including myself, you're forever a learner. Keep learning. Don't get content. Absolutely. There's always yeah. something to be learned and grasped in every new experience. That's that's an important point. I definitely want to drive that home. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a fun question. Say that they have it. Yeah. They, if people say that I know this and I can do this or I have it, then, then I just don't think they're asking enough questions. I'm, I'm always curious about people like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry. <laughs> you you are full of anecdotes. That's that's a great point. Now I want to kind of ask you this: If you were stranded on a desert island and you had to pick one choral masterwork, you only can pick one. Which one would you like to be stranded with? Well, the Verdi Requiem, of course. <laughs> oh, and, I should and have known it would be. Uh, I, less tongue in cheek than you think, um, because you know which one piece has the greatest variety of dramatic writing, and it's this one. Um, the colorful orchestrations change at the whim of a hat. Uh, the his his writing, his balance, his symmetry, his form, 
um, the way he uh, shaped the piece in terms of moving you through a journey. I don't think it gets much better than the Verdi Requiem. So, but could you take a, a, any other piece? You know, people would say many things. You know, that, that Bach. You would appreciate any piece of Bach for the same sort of structured clarity. But, but Verdi was his own uh, master in this regard. But I think the passion is in the Verdi. Now, just in my um, research and reading just about the Verdi record, of course, it was written in memory of Alessandro Manzoni. Um, it's mm-hmm. definitely a powerful work, and its first performance, if I'm not mistaken, was in a church setting, but it has such uh, operatic proportions. I'm sure that's thrilling, not just for the soloist, but also for the choir. Yes, yeah. But uh, the second performance, which is better received, was at La Scala, so... So they quickly took it into an opera house as well. So um, it has been done both in churches and in concert halls. So, so uh, yeah, originally written for Manzoni, his friend, of course, but you know, part of it, the Libera May that Ariana sings, was originally written for a requiem by uh, for Rossini, and it was several years earlier than Verdi adapted the Libera May into this this second version of the requiem. So. So it's interesting to see that other piece, too, and how it stands by itself. Very, very wonderful. Well, it indeed is. I mean, it's such a powerful... And I think that speaks uh, that speaks a definite credit to uh, just the intelligence and the excellence of the music for this work to receive a performance in La Scala, which La Scala is, is noted, you know, to be a kind of a rough place for people to have debuts and so forth and for it to be well-received there. That's a testament to its longevity. Yeah. Well, Verdi, of course, is immensely popular when he was writing this at the end of his career. He was a patrician, a, a gentleman farmer, if you want, um, and certainly he was popular in the streets. The Viva Verdi thing that, that for the reunification was a big part of the sayings, and that's why Va Pensiero is commonly sung in the streets. Even now, at the 150th anniversary in March, it was sung everywhere all throughout Italy as the reunification hymn. Mm-hmm. Just as we uh, wind down and bring the interview to a close, I definitely want to say thank you so much again. It's certainly an honor to speak to you on this level. I know that we've seen each other. I think the first time I met you, I got, yes, that was about nine or ten years ago at George Mason when I was fresh out of school attending Voices United, sponsored by the American Quarterback Association. So this is definitely a high honor to speak to you on on this professional level. I want to thank you so much for the opportunity. That's my delight. Um, Do you want to know about how to get tickets or any information about that? Yes, please share with us. How do we get tickets? It's it's Saturday night is the concert. It's at the Music Center at Strathmore. They have a direct ticket line that people can dial into, and it's 301 Five eight one fifty one hundred, and or if there's any questions, you can always go online and and find Strathmore, the box office there, and it's National Philharmonic presents the Verdi Requiem this weekend. Saturday, mm, absolutely wonderful. Just just before you hang up, I wanted to know if you could you impart maybe if you had to. Um, give advice to maybe someone out here who is a young aspiring conductor and desire to pursue a career in, in classical conducting, what is maybe one or two tips or suggestions you might be willing to offer? Yeah, I think for anybody interested in 
conducting or in, in any performance career in the arts, you must be voracious. You must want to uh, hear and see and learn from everyone. And that means, you know, seeing lots of performances, both live and recorded, uh, spending lots of time in the library learning the recordings and the historic performances from before. Certainly working on your skills in the studio, you must really have performing instruments, strong piano, voice, and any other special instrument skills you decide to pursue. Uh, and then, of course, there's the actual coordination and study of conducting, which is a fine art. I mean, it's working with uh, teachers and mentors and making sure that your your skills are clear and that you have a wonderful way of communicating. You know, don't be a conductor if you don't want to communicate with people and and spend your whole life just enjoying making chamber music because even if it's um, uh, working with 150 or 200 people, it's still chamber music. You're still communicating with each one of those people in a very personal and, a, and upfront way. So one must be honest. One must uh, be humble. You must just be dedicated uh, and just willing to commit your life to a wonderful art. And in return, uh, you'll find that the art takes care of you too. Don't be a conductor if you don't want to communicate. Can I put that in quotes and put it in my <laughs> Facebook status? Because that Anywhere is so true. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some words of wisdom. I want to thank you again so much. We've been speaking with Dr. Stanley Engelbretson, who is the music director of the National Philharmonic Chorale, which is the resident chorus at the Music Center at Strathmore. And I know one thing I must I can't get off the phone without asking the not the phone but get off the interview without asking you this or discussing this. I want, I meant to ask you long ago, could you maybe just give a little history uh, for those who might be unfamiliar about the origin of the National Philharmonic Chorale out of the Masterworks Chorale. Masterworks Chorale, oh, right. I'm sorry. Sure, yeah. Uh when Strathmore was built, I think it's about six years ago now, maybe even seven, but Five to seven years ago, uh, the county of Montgomery built a music center at Strathmore. And as it was coming into being, uh, the National Chamber Orchestra, along with Masterworks Chorus, we were both two independent Montgomery County organizations. We we combined. We became partners. And it's been a wonderful partnership ever since. So our maestro is Peter Gajewski. He is the music director of the National Philharmonic. And I'm the artistic director of the chorus of the National Philharmonic Chorale. But together we've been great partners in engineering a, a, a wonderful form where we actually have our own standing chorus along with the resident orchestra, which is why our performances are always such delights. We're working with our friends. We're working with our colleagues. We know how each other you know, think and work. It's really been a wonderful situation, and, and we're in about our sixth, seventh year of existence now, as I remember. Thank you, Congratulations. I was honored to hear my first performance uh, last year of the National Philharmonic Chorale and Orchestra, you all sang uh, the Mahler Resurrection Symphony, and I was honored yeah. to hear the wonderful soloist, especially mm -hmm. Magdalene Avore, who I've had the opportunity to interview um, on the air as well. So that was certainly a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, again well, we're for doing joining us. Next. Okay. I was just going to say, tune in for next year. Nationalphilharmonic.org is our website. Season is up. We're doing seven or eight great works next year, including the Mahler again, Beethoven Ninth, Sorry. All the great works. Oh. Are there. So we hope that so everybody joins now and forever. 
<laughs> so, listen, did you hear that? The season next year is going to feature the Mahler Resurrection Symphony again and also the Beethoven Ninth Symphony. Please join Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice of classical music at the Music Center at Strathmore in the performance of the Verity Requiem on May 21st at 8 o'clock p.m. The soloists, again, are Ariana Zuckerman, who you heard um, earlier in the interview, Patricia Miller, Don Bernardini, and also Kevin Diggs. It should be a wonderful, magnificent performance. And again, Dr. Ingebrigtsen, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And I hope that you have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate the opportunity. Again, listeners, you've been listening to this exciting interview of the Maestro Series, which was inaugurated today by the magnificent conductor, Dr. Stanley Ingebrigtsen, music director director of the National Philharmonic Chorale, and also director of core activities at George Mason University. Again, I hope that you will join us at the Music Center at Strathmore on Saturday, May 21st at 8 o'clock p.m. as the National Philharmonic Chorale and Orchestra present the timeless Verdi Requiem. Again, I am Patrick B. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. I hope that you have enjoyed this show, and I want to inform you that we have some exciting interviews coming up on Friday, this Friday. Mark your calendars. This Friday, I will be interviewing Dr. Anthony Williams, who is the university organist at Historic Fisk University. Dr. Williams will uh, be a part of... um, the King of Instruments, which is the series that we rolled out uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is dedicated to the artist of the pipe organ. Dr. Williams will be presented in full organ recital at the Grand Washington National Cathedral, and he will be on on Friday to speak about that wonderful uh, recital. Again, I thank you for joining me. I am Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I do hope that you take a moment to follow me on Facebook at Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. If you would like my page, you may follow me on Twitter at Patrick D. McCoy. And, of course, if you have any comments or suggestions or show ideas, please feel free to drop me an email at the African-American voice at gmail.com. Again, this is Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I wish you all a wonderful afternoon.